Good morning again. Turn with me again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I'm only going to look at the first three verses this morning, so don't panic. It's not all 11 that we read. Um, this will be an introduction to the book of Revelation. And thinking about, as I fill in for John on a monthly basis, um, last week in our morning Bible study, we focused on chapter 27 of the 1689 that dealt with our union with Christ and our union with each other because of that union. And it says this, all saints are united to Jesus Christ with their head or their head by his spirit and by faith. Although this does not make them one person with him, they have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. I've been thinking about that statement. They have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And that's what really drew me to the book of Revelation. And Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to... Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What draws us together in union with Christ? Um, It's really the picture and the idea of suffering. And as you think about, and there's some, some very important questions that we have to ask about the book of Revelation and I, I found it interesting. There are some amazing theologians that don't touch it. Do you know Calvin never commented on the book of Revelation? Luther, same way. Um, so what makes us think we can do it? I don't know. Other than we have, as Jesse reminded us this morning, the mind of Christ. And this is for us. And that's what I want us to see this morning. What is the book of Revelation about? Well, I can tell you it's not about beasts. It's not about locusts. It's not about bowls the size of Jesse's coffee cup. (laughs) It's not about dragons and harlots and millenniums and horses of varied colors. Um, Last events. All that is, is in play in the book of Revelation and it has a part in it. But they're all secondary characters. The book of Revelation is about the conquering Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, and how real Christians then and now are to relate to the victory of the Lord Jesus, the conquering Redeemer. So the the book of Revelation, if you want to ask the question, what is it about? It's about Jesus. That's the overwhelming theme, but there is an overarching theme that goes with that. And that is the picture of suffering. And this is especially difficult for, I think the American church, the process we talked about last week, what does suffering look like in America? Um, There's a pastor down in Matthews, North Carolina, not far from here, pastor of Christ covenant church, Michael Kruger. He said this, Quote, I think we've been used to living in a country for so long that was favorable to Christianity that we're not prepared for a world that's not. We've been so used to living in a country for so long that's favorable to Christianity that we're not prepared for a world that's not. I would be derelict as a dad to not teach and raise my children and remind them that the world that they are growing up in looks vastly different than the world that I grew up in. How are we preparing our children for a time that is vastly different from even when I was a kid? I think the same, same goes as an elder. How, how are we preparing the body of Christ for a world that we live in that is going to look much different It is changing in front of our eyes. We can ignore it. We can pretend it's not. But I can tell you this. 
the country that we live in, the society in which we live in, does not view Christians today like they viewed them 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. It's changing. Are we prepared for that? Satan has several weapons in his arsenal, but the two main weapons in his arsenal are seduction and destruction. The days of which um, Christianity is viewed in our country as favorable are over. They're over. I don't know if you saw the, um, the governor of Mississippi say this week, he said, we don't have to fear COVID if we're believers because we believe in eternal life. It's like, let's move to Mississippi. <laughs> but he was absolutely lambasted. Imagine the audacity. Where is separation of church and state? Here is a governor that expresses his faith, his belief in Jesus Christ as his savior and says, I don't have to fear COVID as the rest of the world does, because I know that if I die, I'm in glory. How dare he? In Ephesians 5, 6 through 14, Paul, Paul says this, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at what time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part. In the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will suffer persecution. Not if, will. As the church determines that it will live in a way that pleases God, it will come under persecution. Satan would much rather seduce us away from the truth. How does he do that? Is false teaching rampant in our nation today? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And for those that follow the false gospel, they're no threat. But for those that purpose that they will live godly, they can't be seduced. So then what? Well, then the heat gets turned up. We go from seduction to destruction. How can Satan then destroy the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ who purposes that they will not compromise the truth? primarily found in the gospel. If anything gets compromised, what gets compromised? It's always the gospel. Paul warns Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The word is dioko in Greek. It means to pursue, to be driven out, to, to be expelled. We might use the word in our culture, Maybe this resonates. Canceled. But those that live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, driven out. You're not wanted in the public square. He says in verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The American church, the visible church, is a compromised Judas, bought and paid for. That's the truth. It's been seduced. And as the church of Jesus Christ, the genuine blood-bought believers of Jesus Christ stand out and, and set their hearts and their minds on the fact that they will live godly. They're going to expose by their very lifestyle light on darkness. And it's not welcomed. What happens then? Well, the attempt of the wicked one is to destroy. If you won't compromise, then you have to go. Luke 22, Jesus 
tells Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. We don't sift wheat these days. We buy it already sifted, already milled. But it's a very vivid picture, isn't it? When you separate wheat from the kernel and wheat is processed, the idea of sifting is to pull it apart, right? What is Jesus telling Peter? What is Satan's desire for you, Peter? He wants to rip you apart. The scripture refers to Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He does not want our best. In Revelation 12, and we're a long ways off from this, but just looking ahead a little bit, Revelation 12, 13 through 15. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Satan's desire for the church is to overwhelm it, to sweep it away. What's the historical context of this book? As we think about how this applies and and how this should be rightly interpreted, what is the historical context of the book of Revelation? I, I think it would be said like this, costly Christianity. Costly Christianity. Now, there is a debate among scholars on the date of the book of Revelation when it was written. Most scholars agree that it was 95, 96 A.D. Um, And that's important because if this was written in A.D. 95 or 96, what would Christians in that context have been looking back on? I don't know about you, but I listened to and watched some of the coverage yesterday of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Every one of us, without hesitation, knows or remembers where we were, for those of us that were born. I can remember the day. I can remember the weather. I can remember what I was doing, what I was working on, and where I was when I heard about the attack. And it brings back a lot of a lot of bad memories as we look back on the images of 20 years ago. Think about the church, the seven churches that this is addressed to, and what they were both living, seeing, and remembering. Temple destruction. Yes, in 70. Um, Cameron reminded me that in AD 79, I completely forgot about this. We had a volcano eruption. Um it was major for those in the vicinity of what we know now as Italy, uh, Mount Vesuvius and Pompeo. But think about what transpired for believers between AD 54 and 68, which was the time of Nero. What, what historians refer to as the first persecution, he set the city of Rome on fire and it burned for nine days. Thousands died and he blamed, do you remember? Who did he blame for the the fire? After thousands died, it became very politically expedient for him to find a scapegoat. Who did he blame? Christians. So at that onset, Christians were the intensification of persecution heightened against believers. There were things that he did to Christians that are beyond description. But a couple of them we know well. He sewed them in animal skins and turned dogs loose on them for sport. Dipped them in wax so that they might light his gardens at night. Think about the the satanic, demonic mindset that would do that. And the martyrs that were under Nero. Paul, Peter, Erastus, there were many, many others. In AD 70, uh, Mark just alluded to it. We find in AD 70 that that was the, the fall of Jerusalem under Titus. 
Jesus warned his disciples in Luke 21, verses 21 or 20 through 24. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There was a massive Jewish rebellion leading up to AD 70. They had had enough. They were done with Roman tyranny. And they had some success early on. But the context of believers in, I want you to think about this. This is what is going on in their, their nation. Okay? There's this, this war, this massive armed rebellion culminating in a Roman standoff at Jerusalem. And Josephus, the historian, estimated that the number of Jews in Jerusalem at the Passover season at 70 AD was somewhere in the 3 million range. In his historical writing, uh, The Jewish Wars, Josephus tells us that, that over 1 million Jews died either by the sword or by starvation during the siege of Jerusalem. Over 90,000 were taken prisoner and enslaved. The Roman army surrounded the city and soon famine set in. Armed groups of citizens went from house to house in search of food, breaking down doors and confiscating food and anything of value for themselves. As the food scarcity intensified, conditions got worse and order broke down completely in the besieged city as roving hordes of militants went totally berserk, looting killing and ransacking homes and confiscating all the goods that they could lay their hands on without caring about how their victims would survive. In his account of the event, Josephus writes that thousands of Jews were captured as they went outside of the wall to search for food. They were captured in ambushes, and he writes, quote, they were first whipped and then tormented with all sorts of tortures, and before they died, they were crucified before the wall of the city. Every day they caught 500 Jews, so the soldiers, out of wrath and hatred, they bore for the Jews, nailed those they caught to the crosses. Titus commanded that the hands of many of those caught should be cut off. Now those that perished by famine in the city, the number was prodigious, and the miseries they underwent were unspeakable. For if so much as the shadow of any kind of food did appear anywhere, a war commenced, and the dearest of friends fell fighting one another, nor did they at length abstain from girdles and shoes and the very leather they pulled off and gnawed. Imagine that, so hungry that you eat your clothes, and worse. Josephus continues, a woman snatching up her son who was with a child sucking at her breast said, come, be my food. And as soon as she said this, she slew her son and roasted him and ate one half of him and kept the other half concealed. This was an eyewitness account captured for us in history. So that's AD 70, okay? AD 81 through 96, we find Domitian, who's the brother of Titus. And this is called the second persecution. Domitian was a wicked man. He was self-proclaimed Lord and God. And he declared a law that, quote, no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion, unquote. Historian Tertullian says he had had John boiled in oil. This is John the Revelator, the one writing this. John in the vat continues to preach from the vat. Think about that. We worry about the air not working. John is in a vat of boiling oil, and what does he do? He preaches. 
He can't kill him, so what does he do? He exiles John to Patmos, which is where we find him as he writes this letter to the seven churches. If famine, pestilence, or earthquakes afflicted any of the Roman provinces, it was laid upon the Christians. Cameron reminded me, AD 79, we had a major volcano eruption. Whose fault? Somehow the Christians. These Persecutions among Christians increased the number of informers. We talk about turning citizens against each other. Many, for the sake of gain, betrayed <laughs> and turned their neighbors in. And if, Jesse, if you go to the next slide, there is, um, I think, an interesting way of breaking down the book of Revelation. Um, and this is not mine, but this is borrowed from Robert Godfrey. Uh, a reformed pastor, and he he breaks down um, what he calls the seven cycles of the book of Revelation. I think it's helpful for us because it, it shows the overriding theme in the book of Revelation, the severing seven suffering churches that we'll look at through chapter three, believers suffering through chapter eight, the wicked brought into that suffering through judgment, persevering in that suffering, and then ultimately being delivered from that suffering. That's the over, overriding theme of the book of Revelation. But above all that is a supreme redeemer who reigns, who conquered, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. So how are we to understand this book? And there, listen, there are lenses that many have sought to view and to understand the book of Revelation. We talked this morning in Sunday school it is dangerous to approach the book of Revelation if you are unregenerate. Amen? You want to talk about brutalizing and turning something upside down. The unregenerate understanding of the book of Revelation has spawned many, many a book, many, many a movie. So how do we approach it? And there are historically four main views and I'm only touching on them. My, by the way, my intent in going through the book of Revelation is not to shape your eschatology, okay? I'm going to touch on these different perspectives, but what I really want to do is, is, as we are the children of God, we have the mind of Christ, bring that to the book of Revelation and ask the Spirit of God to teach us. You have preterism which is the view that fulfillment has already occurred in the destruction of Jerusalem. Futurism. It's the idea that, um, well, you guessed it, it will be fulfilled in the future. Um, historicism, um, which is essentially a chronological view of the book of Revelation as a history of the church. Many of the reformers were historical in their view, their framework of their understanding of the book of Revelation Idealism is, is the fourth um, framework, if you will, and it, the book of Revelation really represents trends and forces and represents the spiritual warfare of the church. Um, chapter 20, we're familiar with that, dealing with the, the thousand years that's referenced in chapter 20, and from that we get premillennialism, amillennialism, or postmillennialism. Uh, I'm only touching on these, not to um, not to, to steer the ship one way or another, but there are some things that I think are important in that regard. My intent, again, is not uh, to view Revelation as we study this through a particular lens of eschatology. Uh, I think as we look at the basics of hermeneutics, how do we how do we interpret Scripture by Scripture? That's safe ground. And there are in this, in, in the book of Revelation, over 240 references to what? The Old Testament. So as we have studied through, and we're now um, all the way into the book of 1 Samuel, we've studied um, in depth our way through all the Levitical picture. Revelation takes us right back there. It's incredibly important that to properly understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. Very important. 
symbolism is the main use of language in the book of Revelation. And we may refer to Revelation as parabolic. We don't use that term very often, but it's, it means um, having to do with parables. Um, the idea of a parable is to, is to um, use a comparison or a likeness. For example, Matthew 13, 24 says this. He put another parable for the, before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. Matthew 13, 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. So we're familiar with the term parable, and we're, we're familiar with how Jesus taught in parables. In verse 35 of Matthew 13, he said, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So revelation should be taken literally figurative. Both. Both. <laughs> so what do I mean by that? Um, give you an example. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. We talked this morning about sheep. Are we really talking about sheep or are we talking about sheep? What are we talking about? We know intuitively sheep referring to believers, followers of Christ. When Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, is that literally true? It's a tough way. It's tough. It's not a trick question, by the way. Is Jesus a physical door with Schlage locks? Not the quick set, not the cheap ones. But it, no, he's not. He doesn't have hinges. He doesn't have a knob. He doesn't have a deadbolt. Um, and if it were in today's society, eight different locks on it so that you would not get broken into. No, we understand what he's saying is I am the entryway. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but me. Is that true? Absolutely, it's true. So we see how symbolism is used in Scripture to illustrate truth. So it, it can be literal and figurative as well. Um, literally or exact in con or concrete in meaning. Figurative in the sense that it is, it is a figure of speech or metaphorical. Figurative language to illustrate literal truth. I hope that makes sense. Figurative language to illustrate literal truth. We know Jesus is the only way. And he uses a figurative analogy to say, I am the door. We know what doors are, don't we? And so there's an image there to describe um, what is figurative. All right. So point number one, verse one. Christ revealed. John says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show to his servants the things that must soon take, take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So why was this book given? It uses the word revelation. And by the way, it's revelation singular. There is not revelations plural. Sometimes hear that. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book was given to fully disclose Jesus to his servants. So this is a very specifically addressed letter or epistle or prophecy to his servants. So what did the present day Christians know of Jesus? And why was this necessary? thinking about the context in which this was written, believers in that day would have known he's the Messiah, that he is the promised seed of David, the Redeemer, the atonement, the fulfillment of all the old covenant. Because when he was on the cross, what happened in the temple? The veil was rent in half, seamless, 
and it was split in half so that everybody could then peer inside. He was resurrected after being crucified, resurrected, and appeared before witnesses, wasn't he? And then he ascended in front of witnesses. And then what? What is the rest of it? The book of Revelation reveals more. And it's important to understand why he reveals more about himself. This church, these seven churches are now in a state of intense persecution and suffering. They need more. Now, it's not to say what he has revealed is not enough, but he's giving them more for a reason. And that's what I want to talk about. As we, as we look at the book in its entirety, he reveals more of himself for a very specific reason that is applicable to you and to I. He reveals that he is the victorious redeemer, the conquering king, seated at the right hand of the father, that the mission is accomplished. It's not left undone. And he does this to give them hope. John is writing as, as, as one who is a fellow servant that is under tribulation. We see that down in verse 9. This revelation is for his servants. We talked about it in detail this morning. What makes us a servant of the Lord Jesus? He's our master. He's our master. But we have his spirit indwelling us, don't we? We're his child. We're new creatures. In Matthew 13, 10 through 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. He said, then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Why not just come out and say it? And he answered them, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear. For they do not understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But listen to what he says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Were they smarter? What was, what was Peter and the, the rest of the disciples doing when Jesus was ascended, uh, after he died um, and was buried? Where do we find them? They're drowning worms. They go back to what they knew. They're fishers. They're fishermen. Why are their eyes any better than anyone else's? Because of grace. For truly I say to you, many prophets and prophets and righteous people long to see what they see and did not see, and hear what you hear and did not hear. First Corinthians chapter two, the natural man what? Receives not the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. I want you to see something that the, the revelation of Jesus Christ is an ongoing revelation to believers. We look at the book of Revelation as this distinct book in the Bible. Certainly it is, but with a distinct truth or a distinct teaching. I want you to see that that is not the case, that this is thematic through Scripture, specifically the New Testament. And this is an ongoing revelation that Jesus has given to his apostles, Romans 16, 25 through 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation. This is Paul talking. Same word in the Greek, apocalypsis. The making known of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings, 
has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul was in on the revelation. Colossians 1, 24 through 27. We see Paul suffering for the sake of the revelation of the gospel. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says in chapter two of Colossians, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Ephesians 3. For this reason, Paul, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Same word in the Greek, apocalypsis. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Verse 10, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So when you think of Ephesians, we think of Ephesians chapter 6, the the passage that deals with spiritual warfare. What does he refer to high places there? Spiritual wickedness in high places. I want you to see something here. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What is he saying here? What is he talking about? God is using the church to demonstrate to the enemy that he is sovereign. He is using the church to demonstrate to Satan that he is victorious. Satan, that you have failed. And then he says in verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Last verse on this, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. For we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the faith, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world hath blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. But we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, 
perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. What are jars of clay? You know what the word clay there means? Mud. We have the glory of God in jars of mud. Let me put it this way. Who are the jars of mud? It's us. Paul says you are jars of dirt that God is pouring his glory in. And you know why he does it? To show the wicked one, the enemy who wants to destroy us, that he is conquering, that he is victorious, that he is supreme, that he redeems who he wants to redeem. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Do you see it? The the revelation of the mystery of Christ. What is it? From those verses I just read, just a couple of thoughts. His eternal purpose, previously hidden. You know, we find in the in the prophecy of Daniel, he's not, he's to he's 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 to hold them back. He's not to fully reveal him. God, God tells Daniel, keep it to yourself. Write it down, but it's hidden. His eternal purpose is to redeem a people for himself out of every nation, the Gentiles, the bride of Christ. He is making known in the mystery of the revelation, his eternal purpose. Why is that important for people that are getting crucified and burned at the stake? Why is that important? Because nothing can thwart the eternal purpose of God. That's important for us. It was important for them. It was vital information for them because they felt, in some cases, left left to their own devices. Paul reminds them, you're persecuted, but you're not forsaken. He intends to use jars of mud, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, the foolish preachers of the gospel to what? Confound the wise. The preaching of the gospel is to them that perish what? Foolishness. Are you insane? What is wrong with you people? This gospel that you preach, that you're dying for, do you know that the church in Afghanistan right now is being added to as they're being destroyed? Why? Why is that? Have you thought about that? What's that? Why is the church being added to when they're being subtracted from daily? They're being martyred right now. China, North Korea, Afghanistan, every corner of the earth. The church is being added to while it's being subtracted from. Why? It doesn't make sense. It confounds the wisdom of the wise. But the gospel is to them that perish foolishness. But God is saving his church in the middle of all of it. And Satan can't stop it. He's trying, but he can't stop it. And to do this, he will use ordinary Christians through suffering, through persecution, through pain to make his bride perfect. Pain purifies. It's not a popular thing to say in our day and time. We do lots of things to escape pain. And by the way, I'm not saying there is some sick, demented desire for pain. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the world needs to know, believers need to know that there is purpose in pain. I saw a a post from a, a Christian the other day. He said, I'm thinking about suicide. Will you pray for me? There is purpose in this person's pain. If she is a child of God, there is reason for it. There's purpose for it. God is using it to refine her to sanctify her, to make him more like himself. There's a couple of statements in this first three verses. And John says he made it known by sending his angel um, 
or excuse me, verse one, he said, which God gave to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Then in verse three, he said, blessed are those that hear and, and keep what is written for the time is near. Soon take place, time is near. What do we make of that? This was written thousands of years ago now. What do we make of that? Well, here's the problem. Unless the apostles were completely deceived, they believed that the time was near. How do we know that? Well, let's compare scripture with, with scripture. Romans 13, 11 through 12. Beside this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Why the mention of the nearness of the time? The nearness of the hour should spur us to action. Now, we, time is, is, is a tricky thing. I heard somebody that was speaking yesterday about their son that they lost at the towers on 9-11 say, you know, it's interesting. He said, it's like yesterday. And simultaneously, it's like 20 years ago. But the nearness of the hour should spur us to action. In 1 Peter 4.1, Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Paul says our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. What is he telling us this for? Why the sense of nearness? It's a spurs to action. It's morning. Time to get up. Some of us are not very alive in the morning. Some of you don't necessarily look alive right now. <laughs> But it's daytime. The hour has come. If you knew that your departure date was tomorrow, what would you do? What would you do if the Lord somehow gave you insight into saying, Jesse, tomorrow's the day? You're like, yes, time to go. What would we do? Does it bring a sense of urgency at all? Should it? Of course it should. But he says, put off the works of darkness. Stop toying with sin. The time is at hand. Stop playing around with sin. Put off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. We talked about church discipline this morning. We're all subject to sin. We're subject to get caught up in it. We're subject to get overwhelmed by it. We're, sought to, we're, we're subject to being trapped by it. The nearness of the hour should remind us to set aside sin. The Spirit of God will not let us stay in it. If we belong to him, he will not. And we're fooling ourselves if we think we can toy around with it. I'll never do that. I might go this far, but not that far. Sin is deceptive. It will lure us in, and before we know it, we're entangled. This is why the body of Christ is so important. We're to help hold each other accountable. And Peter says, he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Do you see what God is doing to his church? Well, the Lord's not responsible for that suffering. Yes, he is. He has providentially brought that upon the church to do what? Purify his bride. First Peter 1, 18 through 20, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, has for, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and has and was made manifest in what? The last times. This is Peter writing. For the sake of you, this is what he says in, in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is what? At hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. 
for the sake of your prayers. Acts chapter 2, 14 through 18. Again, the apostles under the Holy Spirit's direct direction said this. They're, they're speaking in tongues and everybody says, they're a bunch of madmen. They're drunk. And it's only nine o'clock in the morning. What's wrong with them? And Peter says, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in what? The last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That was fulfilled. Joel was fulfilled in that very day. And what did the disciples say about that fulfillment? Joel says it's in the last day. So the apostles under the direct influence of the Holy Spirit believed that the time was near. Meaning after the ascension of Christ, what is left to be done? What is the work of the church now? What is the work of the church now? What's left to be done? Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Preach the gospel. God is assembling his body right now. Redemptive history is being carried out right now as he gathers together his elect. And when the last one is gathered, what keeps him from coming back? I think we're in the last days. John is not mistaken here when he says the time is near. It is near. It's like this, though. For those of you that have children and you take a long trip, what is the number one question that gets asked? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And what do you say? Almost. (laughs) Soon. It's a long trip. It seems like a long trip. But guess what? Before you know it, you're there. There's nothing wrong with us asking the question, are we there yet? How long? But the response from the Lord Jesus is be patient, endure. He that endures to the end. We'll see as we get further in the book of Revelation, there is blessing. Hebrews 1, 1, 1 through 2, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Philippians 4, 4 through 7, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is what? At hand. The time is near. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see what scripture is telling us? The time is near. It's not far. Are we there yet? Almost. Almost. Why is this important? To the believers that were being crucified, their hands cut off, burned at the stake. Why is it important? Because when you're going through those things, you need to know this. The end is almost near. Your suffering is but for a short season. And and our sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that waits for us. Compare your suffering in a short, small, tiny window right now with eternity. That's what they needed to hear. That's the encouragement for us. Three score and 10. It's short. I'm 45. It feels like I was 12 years old yesterday. The time is near. I'll be 90 before you know it. If I live that long. You you all see that, right? You see time is moving like that. We see in Matthew chapter 24. For the elect's sake, what? Those days are made longer. They're shortened. God is gracious. He sees the suffering of his elect and he shortens those days. That's the encouragement that the church needs. They need to know that God is sovereign. He is in charge of all of it. And that that suffering that the church will go through, not if, will go through, that he is there right there with us, 
John says, I am your fellow servant, your companion in tribulation. I'm going through it with you. Who is John? Who is John? Verse two, a faithful servant. He said, who bore witness to the word, the Logos. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. John, as the disciple whom Jesus loved, says, I am a faithful witness of all that I saw. What did John see? He was a witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The word testimony is the word martorio. Sound familiar? John saw the crucifixion. Yes. John chapter 13. Now, as John writes the gospel of John, how does he refer to himself? You're writing a book about Jesus that you are in. How do you refer to yourself? The disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself. Now, we could look at that and say, is that arrogance? Is that arrogance on John's part? Now, Peter, as we'll see in just a second, probably thought it was arrogance. Every time he turned around, there's there's John hanging out with Jesus, literally leaning on him. Could you give him some space, John? (laughs) But he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. You know why? Do you know why? If Jesus loves you, nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. Think about that. If Jesus loves you, what else matters? In John chapter 13, verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him, ask Jesus of whom he is speaking, meaning he's about to be betrayed. So Peter wants to know. He's like, John, you're on the inside. Give me the scooter. And, and Jesus tells John, the one with whom I'm about to share the sop with, he it is that is going to betray me. And he hands it to Judas. John 19, 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus, where his, where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. Could there have been a greater privilege bestowed on a man than the suffering Savior to say, take care of my mother, the disciple whom I love? When we find the announcement of the resurrection takes place, Mary Magdalene comes from the tomb in chapter 20. While it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom, or the one whom Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Chapter 21 of John, verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. This is after his resurrection. The disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. You know, Peter was like, I'm not decent. Where's my rope? It is the Lord. He recognized them. After that chapter, in chapter 21, verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Jesus is talking to Peter, and Jesus had just told Peter, they're going to carry you out, signifying what manner of death Peter was about to partake in. Okay? Jesus tells Peter, you're going to be martyred. And you know what Peter's response is? What about John? What about John? The guy that's always hanging on you. What about him? He said, the one who also had leaned back against him during supper. And he said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Um, When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Meaning John. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Meaning to Peter, none of your business, Peter. 
You follow me is the command that God, that Jesus gives to Peter. So the saying spread abroad among the brethren that his disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things and who knew the testimony of Jesus Christ to be true. John witnessed firsthand, and there's no arrogance here. It is merely just a recognition that if Jesus loves us, what else matters? Jesus, or John did not announce himself as an apostle. He announced himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword separate us from the love of Christ? None of it. None of it. Because what else matters if Jesus loves us? Verse 3 and quickly. We have a relevant blessing. What does this have to do with us? We see the context that this is written in to the seven churches who were under incredible persecution. John says this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep it. Keep what is written in it for the time is near. By the way, we find a little bit further that the angel is John is we'll get further into this, but John is enraptured on the Lord's day and he's just standing there in awe, looking at what he's seeing and essentially the throne room of heaven. And the angel says, John, right. And he's, I I can just see it in my mind's eye. He's enraptured at what he is seeing. And the angel says to him, right. Why? Have you thought about that? Why does the angel tell him to write? These things are written. Why? Why are these things written? It wasn't just to the seven churches that these are written. It's relevant to us. The angel tells John to write so that you and I right here today can hear exactly what we're reading. And we're seeing in the word of God because it was written down. It is relevant to us. A blessing for those that understand and recognize. Who is that? When you look at the book of Revelation and Google it, or don't Google it, you can see all kinds of crazy things about the book of Revelation. When the unregenerate get a hold of God's word, they do awful things to the book of Revelation. Who is this written to? How is it relevant? It is a blessing It's the word fortunate or positive. It is a big positive in today's vernacular for those that read it aloud. And by reading it aloud, it means to understand and recognize. He that has ears to see or eyes to see, let him see. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Who is that? When Jesus spoke in parables, who was he talking to? His disciples. It's given to his servants. That means it's to you and I. If the spirit of God indwells us, we belong to him. This is written for us. Blessed are those who listen. They pay attention and then they keep it. It's not enough just to hear it, is it? The word keep is the word in the Greek, tereo. It means to guard, to protect, and to obey. He said, hear it understand it, protect it, obey it. And there is great blessing to the church for those that understand and recognize this. What is the blessing? What is a blessing to this church that is being absolutely devastated by persecution? Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy with compare or worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us for the creation waits with eager 
longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is he saying there? If you have the spirit of God in you, you're groaning on the inside, waiting to be fully and completely redeemed. When this mortality shall put on immortality, this corruption shall put on incorruption. Then there's no more sin. We talked about it in Sunday school. I don't want to go back to Adam where I have the freedom to either sin or not. I want to go where I can't sin, where there's no capacity to sin ever again. That's what he's talking about. We groan in travail waiting as a child about to be born because we know that soon, are we there yet? No, soon. This corruption will put on incorruption. This mortality will put on immortality. They can kill you. They can do all sorts of things physically to you. But guess what they can't do? They can't take your salvation. You are eternally secure. You're in the hand of God. They can't touch you. Satan, despite all of his efforts, cannot touch us. Are we there yet? And the Lord answers almost soon. Be patient. Wait a while. It won't be long. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do today rejoice in our Redeemer. How is it possible that you have poured your glory and your grace into jars of mud. There is not one of us here that is worthy of your sacrifice and what you accomplished on our behalf. Father, we ask for your sustaining grace as we go to our jobs. and Father, the, the work that you've called us to this week, we need your Holy Spirit to empower us that we may, may walk worthy of our calling. Father, I pray today that your sheep would be fed. Lord, that your word would resound in our hearts, that we would hear it, that we would keep it, and that we would obey it. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that the time is near and that our work is about to come to an end because you will very shortly fulfill our Sabbath and we will one day be with you in the not too distant future. Fill us with hope, Lord. Um, Guard us from discouragement this week and weariness. Help us to be patient and endure to the end. We thank you for this. In your name we pray. Amen.